In this week's episode, conspiracy theories are running hot in comics. And I'm sure that has nothing to do with our real world. Not at all. No way. Bigfoot is real. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it's all happening now on Cover B. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Cover B. Welcome back to Cover B, everybody. How you doing? How's life? How the kids? How's your mama? <laughs> what you having for dinner? <laughs> yeah. Did you make me any? Um, <laughs> we are here to talk about comics. Quick shout out if you happen to be one of the uh, one of the people who I guess shops at one of the stores that got hit with delays. If you didn't hear, Diamond Comics got hit with a ransomware attack over the weekend. Oof. OMG. Big um, oof. And that caused some delays in certain areas. Uh, so apologies if you're hearing about these comics and your store wasn't able to get them. I hope they're able to get them soon. And I hope Diamond figures out their cyber security a little bit better. Diamond is having <clears throat> They are having the a wonderful year. 2021. Oh, yeah. it's Man, like you think of most businesses struggling. Diamond is just like, they're just getting whapped in the mm. face. Like full glove slap just yeah. like over and over and over again <laughs> yeah i mean they lost dc in 2020 which is crazy to me now that i think about how long it's been that dc's been gone i know from diamond it feels like yesterday yeah it's, it's crazy it's insane how long we've been in this panini um and they lost marvel this year they lost scout this year they lost I think they're losing IDW if they haven't already lost them. Oh my god. Uh they lost accounts on Alliance Games. They lost Asmodee. Oh my god. Last year, maybe this year. I think it was last year. They got a ransomware attack. Uh they've had some other things and some hiring issues and like staffing issues and stuff. It's it's been a nightmare to be diamond, but I mean shakeups in industries like this happen. And it's necessary, and it's healthy, and we've been saying for years that somebody needed to knock Diamond off their high horse. Yeah, I mean, there's benefits to having Diamond be the king of distribution. Like, I, I know the ordering and stuff has become a bit harder and Tedious. more complex, yeah. and every site has their kind of own thing. Um, but, you know, at least there seems to be more of a competition to ship books in a way that's not damaged penguin had a rough go in the beginning mm -hmm. but they changed and the reason they changed is because people had the option to go back to diamond uh, you know it's like yeah. if if marvel had just left completely penguin wouldn't have any incentive to change you yeah know? true but they changed and the only reason that exists is because there's competition in the market you know diamond for years has just been shipping things the exact same way yeah. Tons and tons of damages every week, shortages every week, and it's like there's there wasn't any incentive to change for a yeah, long, Yeah, there's no motivation time, to improve. You know? And I still don't think technically they have a lot of motivation to improve because they're not really actively competing. Like, Marvel's the only thing that they're really competing with. Right. Um, and, I mean, they can't compete. <laughs> they're, they're losing the competition like the pricing for shipping and buying marvel comics from diamond is way worse than she's not even a comparison Penguin. and you know it's it's like 
who cares? You know, they might be able to retain some larger accounts, but like the majority of accounts are going to get a better deal over at Penguin. So yeah. why, you know, why bother? 50% off plus free shipping. It's it's an easy choice. Yeah. You know, shipping a diamond is like 6%. So Oof. anyway, uh, that's not why we're here. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for enjoying that micro key issue. <laughs> So yeah, I'm sorry if you didn't get your books this week. Hopefully they come in soon. I don't know. I haven't seen any updates on when the delays are shipping. If they're shipping next week or they've already shipped. But hopefully they've already shipped and you've gotten them already. Uh, if you don't. We just want to make sure you get your money's worth on this episode. Yeah. Not that you've paid anything or anything. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Dial it back. <laughs> All right, first up, we've got from Boom. This is regarding the matter of Oswald's body number one. Uh, this was written by Christopher Cantwell, our homie, uh, with art by Luca Casalanguida. Uh, this is, honestly, if you told me this was a spinoff of uh, Department of Truth, I believe you. Uh, conspiracies yeah. are a hot topic these days for yeah. some reason. I wonder why. Can't place my finger on it. Uh, I have so many questions. Yeah, about yeah. why I have. Yeah, I, it's <laughs> it's an interesting question, right? It's like the question of why are conspiracy theories so big, and you know, we'll just put that question in the distance for now. You could say we're going to put that cue anon. Um, <laughs> Damn. That was really good. <laughs> so anyway, conspiracies are a hot topic. This one focuses on one, again, that the Department of Truth has kind of settled on as well, uh, which is the mystery surrounding the assassination of JFK and all the conspiracy theories that come around to this. This particular one, as you can tell by the name, uh, focuses on the conspiracy theory that the Lee Harvey Oswald was never killed. And the body in his grave is a double mm -hmm. of some kind. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see essentially some, we follow a government agent of some kind, yeah. maybe some sort. We don't know who he's affiliated with, really, uh, named Frank, as he goes around the world collecting up a team that is going to help him pull off this body swap or this doppelganger type thing. Yeah. Um. And, yeah, it's just him assembling his team in this first issue, for the most part. T, thoughts? I really liked it. You guys know that Cantwell is my homie. Um, and I was very excited when I saw his name on this title. Um, I think it is interesting. There have been lots of books recently that are all focused around Kennedy and the assassination and, like, those kinds of like conspiracies and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I like seeing the diversity that can come from all different angles of addressing the conspiracy. So like, is he alive and running an organization? Is he alive, but hiding somewhere? Is there stuff around his death? Like what the different angles that can be pulled from it mm -hmm. is nice because it's clearly not something that's been like overplayed historically like there's always been jokes about it but i feel like this weird renaissance of conspiracy theory books and comics is kind of a new thing which honestly is really nice because 
Lord have mercy, I can do without more zombies and vampires. Um, <laughs> so there, just throwing that out there. I really liked this book. I think it's interesting. It's developing a really cool cast of characters. And I think it did a surprisingly good job of fleshing out each character, despite the fact they're only given like a page or two to kind of be introduced. Um, but that's a that's a testament to the writing quality. Um, I think the art is really good. I think it fits the tone and the themes very well. Um, I I don't know. And I really, 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 really enjoyed the there's a front segment following a sheriff talking about the excavation of Oswald's body. Mm. And I don't know. I thought it was really cool how this like four page chunk of this book has an entirely different tone and voicing, but it all feels very coherent and cohesive. And like, it makes sense together. Like it's, it's just impressive to me the way that the book flows in and out of different voicing, Mm -hmm. um, which is not always done masterfully in comics. (laughs) Sometimes it either feels like super disjunct and you're like, I don't know where I am right now or what this has to do with anything or, it just everybody kind of sounds exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to see the fluidity. And I feel like that's always been something that Camel's been really good at. So. Yeah, I agree. Uh, not a lot of narration in this book, which was one thing I noticed, which was cool. Love most that. Of the, <laughs> most of it takes place in the 60s as he's collecting his team. And most of that is done strictly in dialogue. Um, as opposed to, you know, exposition and setup and narrative and all this omniscient viewer and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I dig this kind of setup for something. I, I like that it's a conspiracy theory book that is more grounded. Yeah. A lot of the times, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about conspiracy theory books and not talk about uh, Department of Truth. Right. Which is buck wild which is it is bananas and it's all about like (laughs) reality altering and stuff like that um and then you know there's like that i don't remember the name of the show but i have friends who watch it there's like a conspiracy theory show that's like a comedy like rick and morty-esque animated show yeah that you know has all these different conspiracy theories kind of out in the world um and usually basically what i'm getting at is usually when you have conspiracy theory shows it's like wild there's like multiple conspiracy theories active and it's you know lizard people and <laughs> aliens and bigfoot and all this stuff and this is taking a look at a conspiracy theory that isn't too bonkers yeah and kind of looking at a turning it into a, like a heist movie you yeah. know of being like this is grounded a group of people came together and they did this i agree here's why yeah. and here's who and stuff like that uh and i think that's an interesting flavor in the grand scheme of conspiracy theory fiction that we have uh, hitting the market these days is just a nice grounded kind of uh, heist movie type vibe. Yeah, no, that's true. That's really cool. Uh, Next up is What's the Furthest Place from Here? Number one. This was written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Tyler Boss. This is a nice, thick book with a variance of chapters throughout. Uh, we see a group of Lost Boy-esque uh, teens uh, who, I guess, are some sort of family slash, to the extent that the Fast and the Furious people are family, they're like a gang. Um, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Who are headquartered in this record store 
we get kind of a vibe of what their culture is and what their naming, you know, themes are and whatnot and what their whole deal is. Uh, it seems that their group, once you become an adult, you go somewhere else. You're not able to be an adult in this group. Uh, we get a look at other gangs and we get a look at the world outside, which appears to be some sort of post-apocalyptic thing. Otherwise, we're left with a lot of questions. There's these mysterious strangers that seem to have some sort of play in this, like, gang violence. There's this mythical city that exists beyond something called the Wasteland, uh, where there's still, like, functioning technology, perhaps, and things like that. Uh, not too sure what the quest is going to be, uh, but it looks like it's going to develop into some sort of big bonkers sorts of you know, exploration quest looking for this city. But I suppose we'll see. Uh, T, what did you think? This book is bonkers. Um, I enjoyed it, but I feel like... I feel like we need to talk about how unbelievably dark this, mo th this book mm -hmm. is without being dark. Um, there are elements to this that are so terrifying from an adult perspective <laughs> that like it oh my gosh so things like they're all kids they've never at any point had parental figures they've never at any point had anyone be able to explain the world to them the only way they know anything is based on the kids who've already been there and have grown up organically and so inherent big parts of existence and living and being a person just are not something they know. They just don't know. Like, for instance, one of our main characters is pregnant. Very clearly pregnant. Very obviously pregnant. And she has no idea what that means. Mm -hmm. And she has no idea what's happening to her and no idea what's gonna happen to her mm -hmm. and no idea what her future life is gonna look like. And that is horrifying to me. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine just net, like all of a sudden you feel like your body is morphing into something else. Like they, she thinks she might be sick. She's not entirely sure. Like, and I feel like all of these characters have little bits of that, like inherently to it. Like the older kids, they don't know what happens to them when they grow up. They also know they can't stop from growing up. They also don't know what's going to happen to the younger kids when they have to leave because they know they're going to have to leave. Like, there are all these elements of just, like, insecurity that as, like, an adult looking in on these kids, it gives me so much anxiety that I'm like, this book is so well done because it's an ultimate post-apocalyptic because, like, it has literally nothing to do with me. I would not in any, I'm, I'm 33 years old. I would not in any way be feeling the things that they're feeling because I would not be in their shoes. But like, it's really creepy and scary. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, and the art is really kind of muted and subdued. And there's like a big, you know, unification with music and stuff. And so, and to some extent it is grounded in a, in a, our world, in a real world, air quotes used here. Um, because they introduce like music references and things that are obviously like real music references. Mm -hmm. And so to some extent, it's like, this is a future post-apocalyptic experience. But like, 
I have never seen post-apocalyptic done in this way. I have never seen post-apocalyptic kind of like addressed in like the perspective of kids without any guidance. It's very cool. It's very scary. (laughs) Yeah, fair. It's, you know, it's some parts tank girl, some parts fabulous killjoys, some parts doom patrol. You know, there's a lot of lot of different things going on here that if you like certain things, you'll dig this book. Absolutely. You know, it's got, you know, like I said, Lost Boys vibes because it's a rambunctious bunch of kids yeah. and teenagers. And there's a lot of questions that are interesting. Like I said, there's a big gang kind of toss up between two rivaling gangs. The rival gang all wear pig masks and they seem to be adults. But they're very riled up about the teenage group having an adult in their possession. Yeah. And so it's like, mm, why? Why? What's your stake in this? So it's like, it's it'll be interesting to see who set the rules. You know, we get introduced to the idea that, as T said, they, they don't have any experience with the world. They're literally brought to the record store like brought to this group as babies yep and like here you go other teenagers raise this baby and by these strangers they keep calling them and we only see glimpses of these characters um and so it's interesting it'll be interesting to see what their stake in all this is yeah like i said who decides the rules who defines this like charter that gets mentioned about you know the different gangs yeah and... and there's you know talk about oh are we gonna go to war because someone got hurt in the altercation and it's like there's gonna be a council meeting so are there more gangs do the different gangs have different rules and different ways you qualify for them and stuff like that so it's gonna be i'm really interested to see this world i think this is a very unique interesting delightful little world yeah. you know just dripping in you know, punk rock and early 80s, like, hyper synth wave vibes. And, yeah. you know, it, it just, it's got just a really cool kind of charm to it. And I'm, I'm excited to see this one develop and find out more about, because there's elements of it, like, for the most part, it's just very grounded and very real. Yeah. Uh, Just very visceral and organic. But then... There's this, like, one little aspect that is kind of supernatural, possibly. It seems very supernatural. A little bit. And so it's like, what... How does that tie how in does that, to yeah. this otherwise grounded book? How much does this supernatural part, like, kind of breach into this world? Yeah. Um, is it supernatural at all? Really feels that way. But, like, why and how? And so it's it's a cool kind of clash of these two these two themes. Of this, you know, more coming of age kind of organic thing. And then this weird post-apocalyptic, possibly supernatural thing happening. Yeah, so. it. I feel like this book would appeal to a wide array of readers. Mm-hmm. And, and like Chris said, if any of those different genres appeal to you, like a more YA feel, a more, you know, end of the world type feel, a more post-apocalyptic like Mad Max type of vibe. All of these things definitely should lead you to this book. Mm-hmm. 
Finally, we are going to talk about Robin and Batman number one. This takes a look at young master Richard Grayson as he... This effectively could be called Robin Year One. Yes. Yeah. It's the very early stages of Robin after Bruce adopts him and takes him under his wing and shows him the ropes. We are literally introduced to Robin right at the first point he's ever allowed to go into the field. Um, and that's where this takes up. Uh, this was written by Jeff Lemire with art by Dustin Wynn. Uh, if you know Jeff Lemire's stuff, or you've heard us talk about Jeff Lemire's stuff, you know that he does a lot that is focused on family and kind of like interpersonal conflict between family. Yep. Uh, and that's a big part of this. But we see Robin kind of develop into his own, get a little bit, you know, there's conflict that builds between him and Bruce, where Bruce doesn't feel he's ready, but he feels he's very ready. And he's just getting used to the Bruceisms that we know all too well mm -hmm. these days. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, this is a three issue mini prestige mini. So it's going to be kind of a quick bite story that we'll probably just see Robin and Bruce go through this kind of big conflict, a big deciding point conflict, which I think we see kind of happen right at the, uh, tail end of this first issue, uh, and how they get to where they eventually will be, where they are partners in not crime for an extended amount of time. Deep thoughts. In 2021, we don't talk about how Batman made Robins. We don't talk about it. In the current existence, you have adult, mostly functional, mostly capable adults like Dick, like Jason that are all very functional and the only child involved well he was raised by assassins it's not well, bruce's yeah. fault that's what i was gonna say is like you know <laughs> damien all his training happened off screen yeah and it didn't yeah. happen by bruce's hand yeah in 2021 bruce is not a horrible parental figure he's like devoid of the Robin background. You just don't talk about it. Like it happened and everybody knows it happened, but you just don't talk about it. That's why I really like this book because from a 2021 perspective, what Batman has done with Dick Grayson was flagrantly wrong. Absolutely. 100%. He adopted a child so that he could build him in his image and put him constantly in harm's way. There's even a moment in this book where Alfred's like, hey, maybe you're doing this the wrong way. Maybe this isn't a good idea. You know, you never really talked to me about this whole plan from the get-go. Just saying. And Bruce makes a comment about, like, he's not ready. And if something goes wrong, I have to bring home a dead child. And the way that he says it is so kind of disregarding of dick is a person it feels much less like he'd be heartbroken that like a child he adopted and should love dies and more like how would that look on me if i brought home a dead kid like batman can't bring home a dead kid that's gonna make people not look at me good that hurts my ego and i'm I'm so fascinated by this book because it does nothing but highlight 
how jacked up Batman is and how bad his his brain is, but it's not his fault because he kind of also didn't like get raised right. <laughs> you and I had completely different reasons. Really? Really? Okay. I didn't get that at all. I thought Jeff Lemire did a good job balancing the parallels of Dick Grayson and Batman. He's doing a good job showing a man who has dedicated his life to basically coping with childhood trauma and how that man would respond and try to be compassionate and understanding of a kid that he's taken into his into his guardianship who experienced basically the same thing. Right. The line that stands out for me is, you know, Bruce cuts Alfred off at some point as Alfred's, you know, he's like, uh, Dick's acting like a child and Alfred's like about to be like, well, he is a child and Bruce cuts him off. And then Alfred fills in what Bruce would say, which is the child died years ago. He needs to become a soldier, which seems really like dark and compassionate or dark and lacking in compassion. But when you think about it, Bruce was there. He's been in that position, so he knows what kind of feelings are flowing through somebody. He also operates in a city completely laden with criminals and crime and things like that. And so realistically, he knows that that child died whether he had any say in it or, say not. In it or not. And that boy, if he doesn't jump in and kind of give him a purpose and give him a direction and give him function... You know, it's 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 not going to work. He's going to go off and use his acrobatic skills to do God knows what, you know, or just be another, you know, lost boy in the system. And we kind of see that as it goes through is what I like about this is we see Bruce trying to be a compassionate father, but he's breaking barriers and like, you know, stepping over lines and going you know, in directions that he shouldn't just because that's kind of how he sees it right. and how he sees the world. Like there's a big moment where he reveals that, you know, Robin takes his old flying Grayson suit and puts an R on it and is like, I'm Robin now. And he had this idea to become Robin because he was like sketching out ideas in his notebook and he like sneaks out and he goes off and tries to like do good he tails Batman and he gets caught and it's like, oh, I'm going to be in so much trouble. And Batman's like, surprise, I made you a Robin suit. And the only thing Dick can think of is that means you went through my journal. And Batman's like, there shouldn't be secrets between us. Because that's how Batman thinks. Batman's like, I can't have secrets. Like, I'm sorry. That's how I think. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if Alfred was randomly stepping out, I'd probably tail him. You know, <laughs> yeah. like that's just how Bruce thinks. But he was trying to do this nice gesture, but getting hung up on these like Bruceisms. Yeah. You know, and yeah. So I didn't read it as much as kind of a character piece on how terrible is Bruce as a dad. I actually read it as the opposite, like how Bruce is trying to be a good father and really, really <laughs> trying hard. And he's doing well in some instances but where he's faltering is kind of the human side of it you know what i mean yeah all the batman stuff all the robin stuff is 
probably what Dick needs more than anything. And in the narration that Dick does, he loves it. He's here for it. Yeah. And, you know, you can say all day that it's reckless and stuff, but if he feels this way about that, he'd be channeling that energy some way anyway. You know what I mean? He'd be out there after his family died doing something. Who knows what? You know? Dick's always been kind of a arrogant, moody little cuss. <laughs> so it's not unreasonable to think that he'd get swept up in, you know the tide of crime through Gotham and stuff. So uh, I think that's what I think I like the most about this is that the real story of this isn't about Robin training, isn't about the origins of Robin. How did Robin become Robin? How did the first Robin happen? The real, real meat of the story that I think only Jeff Lemire could really like do is how do Dick and Bruce become a family? Yeah. You know, how does it go from Batman to Bat Family? Because that's what we're seeing here. This was the first step into Bat Family Zone. It was Dick. And then, you know, later we got Barbara and later we got other Robins and later we got, you know, Catwoman eventually and stuff like that and other Bat people. But like Dick was the first. This was the first step into Batman being open to the idea of a family. And that's such a big part of his character, especially nowadays. He relies on the family so much, and he's so compassionate and close to his family. Um, so the, I love that Jeff Lemire is doing this. I love that he's really, like, breaking down the walls of, like, how did Bruce go from paranoid nut job who's been doing this for years and is, like, you know, sees other superheroes and, like, I need to know how to take them out just in case. Like, is that kind of guy and is able to find a way to be em empathetic and compassionate to a child that just wants to help, you know? Yeah. I do think there's something interesting too, um, about the relationship of Bruce and Dick and Alfred, um, because Alfred effectively raised Bruce mm -hmm. and, and Bruce ended up the way Bruce did, you know, Bruce has trauma, Bruce, has a lot of, like, issues and emotional instabilities and tries to, like, you know, all of those things, that all of that turmoil that collected from his childhood and up is who Bruce is today. And all of those things are how Bruce treats Robin. And yet Alfred effectively treats Dick the exact same way and raises Dick the exact same way he raised Bruce. But it's interesting to see how Alfred has this one way of trying to raise these boys and despite all of his best intentions, somehow we still end up with Bruce and Dick being so much alike and being kind of reckless and kind of out there and mm -hmm. kind of doing all these things when all Alfred tried to do was give them, like, the stability and the reasonability. And it's, like, it's interesting because part of it makes you wonder, like, is it because of his position as not actually being, like, a parental figure? Like, he's he's there to kind of, like... Bruce is able to shun what Alfred says and be and disregard it to some extent because like, oh, you're not my dad. Oh, you're not a parent. Oh, you're not this. And I kind of feel like there's elements of Dick doing the same thing. Yeah. And that's that's the beauty of a well-written Alfred. I think Alfred is and everyone can agree. Alfred is one of the most important parts of any Batman story that you're doing. Yes. Getting Alfred right 
you have to make him fit the tone of the story that you're trying to say. And you have to make him fit what Alfred's supposed to be, which is, you know, Alfred is never going to tell Batman to stop. He might suggest it snarkily from time to time, but he, he knows this is what Bruce needs. But he's going to be there as a source of love, understanding, respect, compassion, warmth, whenever Bruce needs it. He's going to be there as a source of pragmatism, as, you know, a calming voice when Bruce is riled up. You know, he's going to be there as a source of understanding when Bruce needs it. And ultimately, like, you're right. Like, there will be moments where Bruce is kind of like, you're not my dad, but he'll never actually say that. Yeah. You know, he's not going to fire Alfred. No. And Alfred knows that. (laughs) Alfred knows he could do whatever the hell he wants and Bruce isn't going to do shit. And I think that's the important of writing a good Alfred. And again, Lemire does a really, really good job. He makes Alfred this compassionate, warm, loving, almost, I guess you could say like, I guess you could say parental in his own sort of way. Um, Nurturing. Yeah. Uh, He's kind of the, this is a weird way to put this, but in the eyes of Dick and, and for the purposes of Robin, he's kind of a foil to Batman. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, another beautiful thing about the Alfred character that can be done is he translates what Batman wants to say. You know what I mean? He's often seen, especially in interacting with other characters without Batman there, saying the things that Bruce wants to, but can't. So he's kind of like, you know, you see this in like, often in dramas or movies about like coming of age and stuff, you have like one parent that's really strict and one parent that's really nice. And that really nice parent often does the same thing. They, they, if written well, they translate what the kind of stricter parent is because the grand scheme of things is both parents loves the kid, Mm -hmm. you know, just one of them might have a harder time expressing it, expressing that. And you know, that's, that's what I love about this book is it's just we're seeing Bruce try to figure out how to express love for somebody. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we're watching a kid struggle with trauma and try to find his place in the world, you know? Yeah. And, you know, final thought is I just love all the like sweet killer croc stories we're getting out. Me too. Like killer croc has really done a 180 from like just some random character that's used to be like a big guy with teeth (laughs) to like one of my favorite characters that pops up in books. Like he was in that Cliff Chang, uh, Catwoman story. Yep. Catwoman old city. Is that what it was? Um, he was in that one and was hilarious. He's in Batman reptilian Garth Ennis and it's hilarious. And he's in this and it's really like, I don't know if they'll take it to where he's like now the bad guy or something, but at least what we've seen of him was kind of sweet, you know? Yeah. Like he fought Batman for a bit, but we see that he, you know, was originally at the circus where the flying Graysons were and kind of little tiny killer croc in his tank, like watching the Graysons like, ah, it's adorable. So it would be cool to see him kind of be more of a i like seeing him be more of an emotive character than we've seen in the past yeah so but this one's really cool i love this i think this is a really neat batman character piece and heaven forbid we actually talk about a dc book (laughs) (laughs) i'm doing that a lot lately though they've been having some good ones come out 
that's gonna do it for us yes thank you for listening yes thank you for putting up with our surprise key issues <laughs> if you want more episodes uh, you can find them on our website coverbpodcast.com uh, you can also find us on social media uh, Facebook Instagram TikTok and Twitter uh, we will be there doing stuff who knows what <laughs> but stuff will happen stuff is going on stick around around Thanksgiving time we're going to have a special episode talking about books and ideas for the holiday season for the comic lovers in your life we try to do at least one of these each year and this year we're doing it a little early because supply and demand is making things difficult from a purchasing perspective mm. so stay tuned for that on Thanksgiving yep and until the next episode we will catch you right back here for the next cover, cover B, B. Bye, all.